BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hidden, a true crime podcast. A forensic psychologist and a journalist explore the hidden motives behind unthinkable crimes while examining our deepest fears along the way. Hello, Hidden Gems. Are we live? Are we live? Hello, everyone. We are with two very special guests today, tonight. Thank you, everyone, for joining us tonight. Sisters with us, Celia and Anna LeBaron, they have a story. In fact, some of you might recognize Anna because she has shared her story with Hidden True Crime before. Not only has she shared it uh, before, she didn't realize this, I told her, but she was actually our very first YouTube live interview ever. And uh, I think, Anna, have we come a long way now from Oh my from gosh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that first time was a little bit of a struggle. And look, <laughs> here we are just smooth yeah. as butter. <laughs> right, right. Yes. I think we've started like the first 20 minutes was technical difficulties. <laughs> and here we are full circle. Yes, um, yes. So thank you, Anna, for being our first guest and, and three years later coming back and, and bringing your wonderful dear uh, sister Celia with us, whose story is, is just as incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, these two women, uh, you might recognize them if you have watched a new documentary on Hulu. It's called Daughters of the Cult. It's an ABC uh, production. Is that right? ABC News Studio production on Hulu called Daughters of the Cult uh, because these two women were raised in a cult. Um, Not just any cult, uh, but uh, laid out a murderous cult. YouTube, don't demonetize me for that, but let's just say what it is. (laughs) Um, They're your father. Um, ended up Ervil LeBaron. Uh, many call him the Mormon Manson. He died in prison. Uh, but you know, one thing we want to share for those that want, you know, Anna, why don't you, Celia, Celia, why don't you hold up Anna's book? Anna has written an incredible book detailing her account called The uh, Polygamous Daughter. Is that, is that the name of it? Yes. The Polygamous Daughter. The Polygamous Daughter. The polygamist. Sorry, I want to get the name right. It's it's an incredible account, and then these two incredible women joined together to share their harrowing, brave, incredible story on this Hulu documentary that we recommend everyone watching. Daughters of the Cult. We will briefly go over their story, 
Uh, so you guys understand it was a polygamist, F, F LDS, uh, LDS fundamentalist cult. And, and Anna, do you want to maybe explain it? Do you have the cliff notes of kind of just sharing how you explain it to people when you're like, okay, boom, boom, yes. boom. The cliff notes <laughs> version is um, the FLDS is Warren Jeff's group. And so we want to be very clear that um, what we had, what, what we were part of was a fundamentalist Mormon cult. And what we describe as fundamentalist Mormon is those who practice uh, polygamy specifically, and also other original teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, as taught in their uh, very um, prolific writings, like the Book of Mormon, the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, the Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, and the Journal of Discourses. So those were the original teachings, and people that follow the original teachings are how I describe fundamentalist Mormons. Not to be confused with the mainstream LDS church, the modern day Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Thank you for that clarification. Um, you just keep doing that this whole live, correcting me. I need that, or clarifying. Uh, yes. Thank you. I yeah. mean, this is very complicated and complex on a hundred levels. <laughs> and so we watch um, things that happen or we see um, articles online that are just egregious errors all over the place. And we've corrected some and helped correct some. Rolling Stone was one of them that we got to correct. What I mean, don't call them out. <laughs> no. Oh, you're right. I shouldn't. Okay. It's okay. So we've it's corrected okay. some. Let's let's edit that out. We're just we're just worried now about uh, correcting Wikipedia. So yes. can we say that? There you go. Yes. Yeah. You can say that. It's Wikipedia okay. And you know what? A lot of work. <laughs> Uh, a good journalist, a good journalism outlet isn't afraid of being corrected because they want the facts. So don't worry too much. Thank you, so. Lauren, for that. Cause yes. I was a little yes. bit worried. <laughs> no, do not worry about that. Do not worry about that. So, um, you know, we, we do want to cover the basis of, of your story so that everyone's up to date. Um, uh, we, we won't go into detail. Like I said, that that's where you can read on his book and you can watch the documentary, which we recommend John and I binge watched it five episodes, doc, five episodes, docu-series. Uh, but, but you, I'll say what I think a summary is, and then you guys can add or, or clarify, but these two women, uh, Celia, you're the younger sister of Anna older. Older, you're older. See, I already boom. Older. I'm like, I'm like one sentence in, and I've got it wrong. Maybe you too. That's all right. Uh, but uh, so they're the uh, same parents. You guys are full sisters, full siblings. although full siblings, uh, same mom and same dad. Although you have how many siblings do you both have? We argued about this on the documentary. <laughs> so, so I, I say we have 55 siblings if you count both my moms and my dads. But when I talk about um, my father's biological children, he had 51 children. Okay. Okay. But so some of them half, but you two some were. Some of them half. And then we had also step-siblings involved. So depending on how you're counting, if you include all the step-siblings that we love, um, you go up to like in the 65, 66 range. Yeah, as you say in the documentary, you know, polygamous math is hard. <laughs> Polygism, polygamous math is hard. That's what you said in the documentary. I love that line. And uh, Ervil LeBaron, your father, was the leader of this cult. 
he considered himself a prophet. Is that a, the word to use? Absolutely. And absolutely. And in the end, he ordered the murders of many, including, you know, many of your family members. And even after his death, many of those murders continued to be carried out years after his death. The four o'clock murders are what those were called. Um, and uh, it affected all of you, uh, both of you so much. So I think that's that's like Anna, you escaped when you were 13, but mm -hmm. then still suffered the, the remnants of this cult. Mm -hmm. You're, you know, you were being raised by people who ended up then being murdered. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, is there anything else you feel like I need to add John or Anna or Celia to this sort of basic uh, foundation before we begin? Celia, how um, old were you I, when you got out? I was 19 when I finally ran away. Okay. More devout, stayed longer. You were a missionary. Yes. I was very, very de devout believer. Yes. I was totally brainwashed. Anna was the rebellious one. Yes. Yeah. I always say she had a little more spit and vinegar in her. <laughs> so and thank goodness I did. <laughs> I'm so proud of her. Like I, I really am a little embarrassed. It took me so long. Okay. And you John, what do you feel? You embarrassed about. Um, I, I think, so when we talk about, and so one thing we didn't mention is that, right, the documentary said something like 51 to 55 kids, depending on which person you ask, right? But mm -hmm. there were, and then there were roughly like 13 to 14 wives mm -hmm. that Herbal had, right? Is that depending on who you ask again? Yeah, we could it's Wikipedia 14. says 13, but okay. we know there was another one, but she didn't last very long. She was just months. I think that she was with our dad and then she ran away. So maybe she shouldn't have to count. I don't know. <laughs> so I, I think uh, an interesting way into this for me is, and, and Lauren, by the way, so just I'll point out that she oversimplified that history tremendously because Joel... <laughs> Joel was the first prophet, right? Like mm -hmm. when, when Joel and, and Ervil were clashing and we were watching this documentary, you know, and I, I knew part of this story from our interview with you on it, you know, mm -hmm. a couple of years ago, but I didn't know all of it. And when they were clashing and then you guys started talking about how Ervil was sort of charismatic and he wanted control, I turned to Lauren and I said, uh-oh, this is not going to go well, right? Like I knew Joel was going to be in the crosshairs right away. Mm -hmm. And indeed he was. So, so a big part of the story is that the siblings clashed over who should be the, the true prophet, right. Of the church of the firstborn of fullness of times. And Ervil right. didn't want to share, apparently didn't want to share the throne. So he then had Joel murdered. Um, and so that that's really, you know, you've got this sibling clash that, that kind of begins this story. Um, and then you talked about the 14 wives or the 13 wives and the 51 children. Uh, and then there was a quote, and I think this might be, for me, this is maybe the most interesting way into this story. There was a quote, that, the quote that, that just floored me. And I don't, I think it was you that said it, Anna, but the quote is, referring to the wives and the children, all became pawns to kill. They all, in other words, all the wives and children became pawns to kill. Yeah, we right? were groomed. That's, that's, 
that's an incredible with with all these wives and children. That's an incredible statement. I mean, can you? So, can you guys kind of help us explain what that means and how that worked? Celia, go ahead because uh, well, you experienced feel, more of it than I did. Okay, yes. So, um, from a very very young age, uh, we were taught, you know that. You know, we read the Old Testament a lot. We read a lot of the Journal of Discourses where blood atonements and the death penalty for breaking the Ten Commandments was a thing. So I remember from the time I was six or seven, learning about Abraham and him being taken, taken, taking Isaac up onto his mount, onto the mountain to sacrifice him to God. This was his innocent child that God ordered him to, to, to murder and being taught in Sunday school that we had to be ready to obey God, no matter what he tells us to do, including killing someone. And, um, and I mean, this was taught by a sweet little lady who she was one of my dad's wives. She ended up actually killing for him later. Um, but when we were being taught this, I realize now it was in the backdrop of my dad was actually uh, had already or around the time that he had committed his first uh, ordered his first murder and that was uh, his brother, Joel, that he ordered the hit upon. So okay. they were trying to justify that in teaching these children. And I remember learning how to shoot from a very young age, how to shoot a gun. And our brothers were taught to shoot and the women were taught to shoot. And, you know, we, we had such a scattered life and such a scattered group that, um, you know, depending on where you were, you may have got more instruction that way and more teaching. But I mean, I don't think Anna remembers really being drilled or or taught to be like a soldier type person. But um, but I I absolutely know we were being prepared and groomed for. Well, I do know that at some point we went out in the backyard into a field and shot BB guns and you know that kind of thing when we were young kids. Right. So guns were something that we were familiar with, and I mean Hiram tells the story of getting shot almost going blind because right. of neglect and the adult supervision that was not happening. Um, he got so, shot in the eye with a BB gun. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, but it just goes on from there. Those weren't the only things that happened. Those were minor because those were my experiences. And I don't want to speak um, for my other siblings. Um, oh, I was taken out in the woods and we shot shotguns. I remember shooting clay pigeons out in the field and, it was it was very much drilled into us. We were taught horrific things about the early um, about the early Mormon days. Like we were taught that um, the Mountain Meadows massacre was like a great thing of people, you know, people serving God and and doing what God said. So everything just was real twisted. Like they really shaped our minds in very twisted ways to see evil absolute evil as being good and glorious and for god so it was it was a, a a very deep programming okay right thank you for explaining that and so it, it appears to me that when when joel and ervil had this falling out that's when ervil started what he called the church of the lamb of god mm -hmm. and and that segment and so you had apparently you had herbal herbalites versus joelites right that's what they that was that's the kind of what they called them but just okay. know that it was dan and herbal like all the most of the pamphlets okay. that my dad wrote had 
had Dan Jordan and Herbal. It was Dan and Herbal that went and established the Church of the Lamb of God. It was not dad, my dad acting alone. And unfortunately, okay. that's not how history has really played it out. I mean, that, but that is more accurate. In the in the history of it, Ervil's name is always brought up and yeah, always. And so, so it's so it's been historically Ervil, but we've wanted to correct the record and yeah, and I say think. that it was Dan and Ervil, and that happened in the documentary. We were able to to do that, establish that correction. Yeah, and actually, that's that's where I was going to go with that thought, is that when the Church of the Lamb of God began, which was after the split between Joel and Ervil, the term that was used to describe the church was it was a type of militia, right? And that, that militia, it appeared to me, was largely the result of Dan Jordan, mm -hmm. that Dan really kind of was responsible for training the soldiers, if that's the right term, or the, the children and the wives, as you just said, Celia, to to learn how to shoot and right to 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 make killing well, a part of the vocabulary. Was father teaching his children anything. Our, <laughs> right. Yeah, we didn't have much to do with our father really. We hardly saw him. But I I was that's too young for me. I know that later it was Dan Jordan for me as a teenager. Okay. It was certainly Dan Jordan that was taking us out and teaching us shooting. Um, but back then I was too young. I was only seven or eight at the time. So I. I really can't speak to that accurately. Uh, there are some people that I've heard of that said they knew Earl in his younger days and that he wasn't a violent man. We know for a fact from personal experience that Dan Jordan was a very violent man. Um, so they, uh, some people say, and I do not know this for a fact, but some people claim that it was Dan's influence upon Earl. It, it was certainly the combination of the two that made the Church of the Lamb of God very deadly. Okay, right. That makes sense. And so, but, but it, again, it's important. You guys mentioned that it's important to to acknowledge the fact that Dan Jordan was a big part of that. He wasn't just someone in the background. Correct. He was the one who actually carried out the first murder against Uncle Joel. And he okay. was the one that taught me more about more, uh, you know, he's the one that glorified the Mountain Meadows massacres and the people that used to kill for Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, the Danites or whatever. Danites. I mean, Danites, sorry. Yeah, the Danites. So he, he was the one definitely that programmed me more than my father ever did. But it was when I was a little bit older. But I would say I can't speak for our older siblings or our much older people that were part of those early days. But they for sure had influence by both Ervil and Dan. Whereas we younger kids, um, I was um, I was three years old when Joel was murdered, and so my experience, you know, is just on the run from the law from then on out. And so I didn't have contact with my dad. But the in the years prior to that, my guess is that our older siblings and older people from the cult would have had, you know, some more influence with Ervil and Dan both. Okay. Right. So if we're, I guess if we're telling the story somewhat chronologically, and again, we, we, I mean, I, I refer people to 
the documentary Daughters of the Cult for the full story. There, you, it took five hours to tell it there. We're not going to tell it here. And, and I was going to say to Lauren, when she said the cliff notes, I said, ah, you know, I don't, I'm not sure there's cliff notes that can summarize this succinctly or no. you know, there's, there's probably no elevator pitch here that's going to encapsulate this story, you know, <laughs> readily. So, so again, I'll, I'll refer people to your book and to the documentary to get the details. But so it begins with with Joel, and so you just mentioned that Dan Jordan was responsible for that. So Joel is murdered, and then where would you go from there? There's the Los Molinos massacre. That seems like the next thing. Like what? Yeah. So in telling the story, where would you take it from here? So after uh, our father had his brother Joel murdered, he expected the whole Church of the Firstborn of the Fullness of Times to flock to him and accept him as the leader. And that unfortunately is not what, fortunately actually, but that is not what happened. Um, Instead, it fell to uh, his other brother, Alma. No, Berlin. Berlin, sorry, yes, Berlin, who um, became the next uh, leader of the Church of the Firstborn. And so my father then was on the attack to take him out too and searched and searched and made many, many attempts to on his life and to try to find him. Like that's what happened with the Los Molinos raid is they were trying, they thought that Verlin was uh, in Los Molinos at the time, which he wasn't. So they carried out a terrible, horrific raid on the people in Los Molinos and killed two men and wounded many others um, and didn't right. find him. So in an attempt later, should, should we go on? I mean, he he had several attempts where he tried to uh, find his brother, uh, his brother Verlin unsuccessfully. Right. Including include. And again, I'm, I'm oversimplifying here dramatically. Please go to the to the documentary Daughters of the Cult, but the including trying to draw him out at the funeral of Rulon Allred, who of Rulon Allred, yes, that he was another. Um, I would call him a rival polygamous leader. He but had a I, mayor. but using the word rival is not an accurate assessment because Rulon Allred was not did not consider Ervil a rival. It was Ervil who only considered Rulon a rival. Right. Gotcha. Rulon, by all accounts, was a peaceful, more benevolent leader over a okay. very, very large group of polygamists. Much like yeah. Joel. Much like mm-hmm. Joel was. Right. And so um, our father called him to repentance and demanded that, you know, he he uh, acknowledge Ervil as being the one true prophet on earth and asked, you know, demanded that he pay tithing to Ervil. And when Rulon refused to do that, um, that's when my father put a hit on him as well. And uh, not only was he trying to put a hit on him for not, you know, repenting of behaving like a false prophet, according to Ervil, but he also was hoping that when the, um, when the funeral happened, that they would be able to then take out Berlin, who they were sure would Come to the funeral, hmm. right? And he, and fortunately, he didn't. Uh, I think he I was at the funeral. Oh, he was. They okay. aborted the the men that were sent to carry that out. Saw the police protection surrounding okay. the mourners, and said, "We 
this. We can't do this. It was right. a suicide mission to try to go in there. There was such a large crowd of people and just so many authorities there to protect, you know, the, the, and rightly so. Right. Thank goodness. And, and I think that, you know, one of the things that I don't want to get overshadowed by the gruesome stories that we are telling is that there were a lot of victims. Oh yeah. Yeah. We, we cannot just overshadow that with this gruesome stuff. And in fact, it was our father caused generational trauma. Like he putting that hit on rule and all red. I, I'm, I get choked up thinking about it. Like he had a lot of wives. He had a lot of children and they all then were left without their father who provided for them. He was a, like a naturopathic doctor and he provided for all these women and these children and they were left now without that support. So it, whenever I come across any of any, you know, family of um of Rulin or any other victims i i like to give an apology and this isn't the right place to do it and it's not even me that's guilty of anything but i i really feel for them and i recognize that they're they really suffered and it was because of our father and yeah, dan and, jordan <laughs> and and you can see that in the documentary they the they talked to several of the children of Rulon yeah. and they're, they're quite emotional and quite impacted by it, even to this day. Yeah. I don't think when, they. When we were planning the documentary and working with Sarah Mast at the beginning, we said, please um, invite any of them that want to come and speak any of the victims of any of the crimes that happened so that their stories, if there was any amount of healing that could come from them having their perspective uh, as part of this um, overarching story, um, we wanted them to be part of it. And and we didn't say, oh, this person or that person, no. We just said, you invite any one of them. We even invite invited Dan Jordan's own children to be a part and they declined, but we- right. also they could give his perspective because the, he didn't treat them as badly as he treated us. Right. And so we wanted this to be as a broad a perspective as possible, including the voices of the victims. Right. Which you did. I think you did that just so you know, in the documentary. Yes. And here too. Thank you. Yeah. And so, you know, again, I'm, I'm overlooking a lot of details. Like we can't tell the story in depth tonight, but just to summer. So when I when it gets to this point, and you mentioned the funeral, when it gets to the point of Rulon's funeral, one thing that really struck me was just the immense level of fear surrounding everything. And I, you know, I was trying to imagine you guys in particular, or our siblings, in this environment where you have this. I would imagine you. I mean, you guys can help me understand it, but there, there there's this this fear pervading everything. Could you, could you talk a little bit about what that was like? Well, I was uh, in utero with, when my mother and the Joel and Ervilite, uh, Joel's and Ervil, you know, chasm began. And so I'm imagining all the fear and adrenaline just from that schism happening and all the drama among all the adults. And then that's when I was born. And then 
you know, I'm three when Joel is killed. We lived life on the run with in fear and I, we weren't aware of what was happening because we were little. Some of the adults were, of course, but as children enduring that, we weren't aware, aware of it, but we just knew that the fear was palpable. The anxiety was palpable. Um, the adults did not have enough presence of mind to care for our basic needs because they were so worried about what was happening among the adults. Yeah, I mean, did you, with that kind of fear, did you, did you feel like you were, maybe not when you were younger, but at some point, did you feel like you were sort of looking over your shoulder? Um, as as older we did, but not younger, we were just taught that we were being persecuted because we were God's chosen people. I'll be honest, most of my fear was about outsiders. And especially okay. police yeah. and authorities. That's where yeah. I didn't know the fear was actually coming from within. We were yeah. taught to fear the outside okay. and cling to those on the inside. I mean, they would sit us down and um, and have us practice saying if there's a policeman um, that you know comes because we were raided multiple times in in my life. Right. Um, if the police come and they ask you any questions, your answer to everything is, I don't know. Even if they ask you your name, are you hungry? I don't know. What's your name? I don't know. Where's your dad? I don't know. Who is your dad? Everything is, I don't know. You're not allowed to know anything. We were taught. Which is the definition of a cult, right? To fear outsiders. So we were taught to refer to our dad as Theo, which means uncle in Spanish. All the other wives were our aunts Mm. and all the other children were our cousins. So we were taught how to remain undetected by outsiders. And, you know, just when we were out and about, we were not allowed to play outside because they would have 20, you know, kids and three women in a 1400 square foot house. And you couldn't have, you couldn't rent a house and say you have a mother and father and two children and then have 20 children piled inside. And so we weren't allowed to play outside because that would cause the quote nosy neighbors to, you know, get suspicious and turn us in or call the authorities or anything like that. So it was just fear piled upon fear from us being afraid of the law and the authorities and the FBI. And then I'm imagining, and I've heard and read, you know, Ruth Warner's book, the sound of gravel. She was Joel's daughter who was, a nursing infant in the cab of the truck outside of the house where Joel was murdered. So I've heard her stories and they were raised in abject fear of the Ervilites. So, so much fear. And rightly so. So, so much fear all the way around. Yeah. I mean, that comes across very clearly, I think, in the documentary. It was... Mm. Okay. It almost, at times, it almost felt to me like it, it was like living in a war zone of sorts. Yes. I and mean, constant moving, constant instability. The rug was pulled out from under us so many times. We just had to get, that was our normal. Our normal was always moving and sometimes with almost no notice and no explanation. It was just like, get in the car. We're leaving. Yeah. One of the, one of the descriptions that one psychologist who's interviewed 
our siblings that were part of the KOG used the term used the term um, child soldiers. Yeah. Right. And I don't think that's overstating it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I yeah. agree. It was pretty extreme. Very, very extreme. And the amount of suffering that we endured is incalculable. You know, the, the little ACEs test that you can take, adverse childhood right. experiences. I scored a nine out of 10. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. there are ones, siblings of ours that, that are 10 out of 10. Well, one of them is drugs and alcohol. Oh, yeah. So, that's the only so, one that we tend to miss. Because we were so religious and legalistic and, yeah. you know. In some ways. Experiencing religious <laughs> oppression and trauma, we didn't have that one. Right. The one you were really, able to avoid. The one you were really, able to avoid. Drugs and alcohol. I, oh, I made a list and I sent it to you, Lauren, of the incredible, egregious, harmful things that have happened to us. And can I just go down this list? And sure. just so that people have an idea yeah. of what we experienced growing up. Now, yeah, I didn't experience every single one of these, but collectively, as Ervil's children, we did. Just yeah. um, childhood developmental trauma, severe psychological abuse, religious trauma, or spiritual abuse, egregious educational neglect, medical, dental, you know, I didn't get glasses until I was in sixth grade, ophthalmology neglect, child slave labor, financial abuse, starvation, food insecurity, severe isolation from societal influences, severe familial isolation, meaning our little family was isolated from everybody else in our family. Um, severe familiar isolation. I just read that one. Severe brainwashing. We were groomed to accept and become polygamists. And then be groomed to become, I call it hit children, because hit men and hit women does not work. These were children. These were minors, not so men and women doing these things. So hit children, because, again, um, Child soldiers is not too strong of a word. Orphan and, soldiers, Jennifer LeBaron, thank you. Orphan yeah, Jennifer LeBaron is saying children's soldiers is it, child soldiers is exactly what it is, or orphan soldiers. Thank you, Jenny. This and, is our sister, by the way. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for that comment. I assume some relation. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So it, when you when you talk about all of that, I think one thing that really stood out from this documentary was your your relationship. You know, the relationship in this, between you two and the sisters, but also the relationships between all the siblings and how close you guys were. Mm -hmm. You know, and it, it seemed to me that just leaning on each other seemed to be such an important component of this story. And it, you know, you could see it on the screen, but it wasn't something that was really talked about. So, um, you know, I think of a story like Hansel and Gretel, you know, they're, they're, they're fairy tales, right? This goes back to like, this is fundamental to like the human experience that 
they're captured by the witch and they save each other because they're so close and they figure out a way to get out. Right. And so literature is filled with these types of stories, but you guys lived it. And, and it seemed to me that those relationships and especially between you two, um, I don't know if this is too strong of a term, but it seemed like to some degree that that saved you guys. And um, it certainly was a huge piece of our mental health. Okay. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. So could you guys, could you talk about that a little more? Just to. Well, I'm just going to say that I, I was two and a half when Anna was born and I always loved my little baby siblings. Um, and I don't remember when she was born because I'm too young, but I remember when she was, oh, I think she was probably six and I was eight. Um, I told her because we were playing in our little garage bedroom that we had. And I remember telling her that she was my best friend and that we were going to be best friends forever. And Anna, I don't think remembers that. But I vividly remember that, and we, it, and it was true. And we are still very, I mean, even though we're so different in so many ways, we just are each other's sounding board for almost everything. And we didn't always even get to be together. Right. We were, you know, sometimes shipped off to different places to live in different homes to help different families when we were pretty young. Uh, even Anna was nine and I was 12 when we were taken to Mexico and we didn't see each other very much, but I remember when we did get together, it was just a, such a balm to my soul. Yes. And, um, and we weren't allowed to cry about anybody leaving and we were always like separated. Um, but I just remember when I would get to be with her, how, just how, how just that was good for my heart. And, and as we, as we got older, um, at, you know, Anna ran away when she was just 13 and I didn't get to see her for three years mm -hmm. and we had to reconnect. And, and I would say when the cult, you know, when I finally ran away and we got back together again, then we became pretty inseparable, mm -hmm. even when we were far apart in other, in other countries, mm -hmm. um, yeah. because, because we just, that's, you know, when everything fell apart, we had each other. And it was through mail and it was through phone calls, but that was a real important part of our healing and our coping mechanism, I would say. Well, don't you want to? Yeah. I mean, we went um, after we finally got back together, like, like you were saying there, there, we were just moved around like pawns on a chessboard, literally just here, go there, go there. Young children being taken away from their mothers, sent to go work in a, in a warehouse somewhere here and there. Um, we, my dad had factions of his cult spread throughout the Southwest United States and um, all of them were appliance businesses, used appliance businesses and they needed slave labor to make those work. So, you know, boys taken out of school as, you know, school in the early days, like first, second and third grade was free babysitting. But then as soon as you were old enough to get put to work, you were yanked out, especially the boys and put to work. 12 hour days in a warehouse, not heated in the winter time and not cooled in the summertime. So the, the amount of separation that happened over and over again, like you would go to sleep at night and there would be certain individuals in the home. And because everybody was wanted, the adults, I mean, people came and left in the middle of the night. So you, when you woke up, you didn't know who was going to be in the house 
or who had arrived in the middle of the night and who had left in the middle of the night. And you just had to accept it. You weren't allowed to complain. You weren't allowed to ask. You could not ask who was where. Where did they go? You just accepted it. And whatever was the fact in the morning when you woke up, you ate your mush and went off to work. Right, right. For And so when we finally got back together, sorry, I just realized what your question was. Um, when we finally got back together, it's like we cherished one another. We treasured the, the bond that we had. And then and after the four o'clock murders, literally the whole family scattered mm-hmm. all, all over. And everybody was too afraid of anybody to have connections. And Celia was... I think one of my only sibling connections after those events happened and, and those events were, weren't even something we talked about very much because it was too difficult to talk about it. And so it wasn't until 1995 that I began seeking, you know, I found a professional counselor to talk to. Um, And so 1995 was how many years, seven years after the four o'clock murders, when I finally talked to a professional counselor for the very first time and told a stranger our story front to back in an hour. And, you know, like the first time talking to a stranger. So I said in the front cover of my book, I don't know, Celia, you might want to read the the dedication. Like, um, I'll let you read that because to me it encapsulates how I felt about my siblings. It says to my brothers and sisters, all the sons and daughters of Erval LeBaron, I'll never get tired of rehashing our stories. It's the best therapy. The stories yet to be lived and told will be the best of all. It's beautiful. And, that's and now we do get together. Today. That's you what get we're together out today. Um, not just my mom's kids. We do have stuff that we do with them annually, and it's a beautiful thing, and it was represented in the documentary. Um, but I reconnected with the, the KOG family members, my siblings that were part of the KOG. Kingdom after, of God. Yeah, yeah, after it completely dis- dissolved in 1991 or the early 90s, It was in 2001, so about 10 years after that, that I reconnected with the KOG siblings. And I did that with fear and trembling. Not because I didn't think, not because I thought something would happen, but I thought, I mean, it did cross my mind that something could happen. But they had been spending their time and being raised by and influenced by Rena, who was Mark's sister, who I knew was a safe person. And so in my mind, um, I could reconnect with them and, and begin having relationships with them. And so with our family situation, with all of the gruesome, horrifying stories that we've all lived, um, when we would get together at first, all we talked about was the past. Right. And it right. was um, hard, hard conversations. So not be able to talk about it without trembling. Yeah. Um, even when I would talk to like a good friend over dinner at a restaurant, I, ha- I would have to sit there holding myself just tight, but under the table, pulling everything in as tight as I can. And I would be shaking and I'm trying to stop shaking and I do not understand what's happening. 
I don't, under, I don't know that that's a trauma response and the adrenaline rush from reliving it in the moment. And I would just shake and tremble and my jaws would get all locked up and I could barely talk telling a safe person my story for the first first time. But then with my siblings, we would get together and talk about it. But then there would be fun things that happened too after we all reconnected and the whole thing was over with. Our and games the whole thing, and the cat, horrible cat puzzle and yes. <laughs> things like yes. that. Um, where... Like um, the, the whole thing has been over for 30 years. And there, you cannot put a finer point on that. And they failed to do that in the documentary. Oh, we so wanted that to be part of it, to, for people to know that it's been over for 30 years, 30 plus years. But I reconnected with them and our first conversations were all very difficult, very um, hard, hard conversations because I lived my life in fear of them starting from, you know, in 1988. I mean, maybe a little earlier than that, but um, but afterwards we would get together again and then again and then again. And then pretty soon we're playing spades and, you know, my youngest daughter is knocking over my brother's beer and, you know, he's making a big deal about it just playfully with her. And so my kids and I are talking about that, you know, looking forward to the next time we get to go visit and you know, the next time it happens again, you know? And so now my daughter has that story as part of her core memories uh, and, and good core memories and good things that we're creating for not just the children of Herbal LeBaron, but the grandchildren who are now a big part of our lives, of course. And being able to have all of this good stuff happening in the midst of also having very difficult conversations with one another about the things that happened. And, and, and I didn't understand most of it when I reconnected yeah. with them. And it's been a very long, uh, how many years now? 23 years of um, loving and caring about my siblings. Um, and, and getting to learn what they actually went through, which right. was way worse than anything we experienced, yeah. even though what we experienced was horrible. Right. I mean, I tell people, I'm so glad that I was the uh, child of Herbal LeBaron that wrote her book first, because once any of my other siblings start writing theirs, people are going to read mine and go, what did you have to complain about? <laughs> and that's not to minimize my suffering at all. I know that's a psychological thing that people do to cope. I'm not minimizing my suffering at all. I will talk about it all day long to anybody who will listen how much I have suffered. But I'm just saying um, most of them suffered more. When you, Just a quick clarification here. When you say that it's been over for over 30 years, what? how are you defining over? Are you? Do you see the cult ending with the four o'clock murders? Or no. No. With the, when the when the KOG disbands, let me tell you how it ended. Okay, um, two yeah. of my brothers that were part of the KOG, both okay. doing different things, and and again, I wasn't part of that, so I might get some of the details wrong. Okay, and, and so I've heard these stories, so I'm retelling them from that perspective. Jenny can correct me if I'm wrong, but 
two of our brothers who were part of the KOG, part of the, they were children. Right. <laughs> I mean, they had their Herbal's teenage children, teenage mostly. children who were now the grand patriarchs at 17 years old. Okay. Traumatized, brutalized children, developmentally stunted children being put in charge. Okay. So two of them get enough distance from the things that had happened to think clearly about what's happening. And one of them specifically said, uh, we're not doing this anymore. This has to end here. And um, he, so I'm telling Aaron's story basically. He's also serving time in prison right now because of the things that happened. But right. he told everybody, it's we're gonna not study these books anymore. We're gonna get a GED. Oh, I don't think he said it though. I think he was trying to do it very carefully so that he wouldn't Correct. get executed. He didn't want to be blood atoned. So he Correct. was in charge. So instead of teaching every Sunday, teaching scripture and religion, he got GED books and started having everybody study the GED books. And from my understanding, from what I've heard, he started going to other churches because he wasn't believing any of this anymore. Mm -hmm. And he didn't know wh what the truth was. So he was investigating different churches. But in, again, not teaching any more scripture, not teaching any more religion on Sundays. He was trying to get them their educations. And just just to clarify, the the I don't think I, we made clear the origins of the KOG. So it, it the KOG, Kingdom of God, KOG begins roughly around 1981. After, after when our Right. And he died. So your father dies in prison. Well, it was around the time it was before our father died. Cause okay. I, ha it's in, it's in the, our father references it. So in his writings, so it was okay. before he was, what happened was he totally lost his mind when he went to prison and was convicted. He went off the deep end. Uh, he was always mentally ill. I'm certain, but in prison, it, it really, took its toll. And right. he began just all these writings and all these quote unquote revelations and all these orders that he was given out, giving out. And because his writings were so incoherent and didn't make sense and were so violent and just, um, just horrific, none of his adult followers really, really wanted to follow them. They're like, okay, so they had to accept that he was mentally ill and could not be followed anymore. The only people he could get to actually do his bidding anymore were his teenage, his young children that were super brainwashed. And they had this certain group of them that didn't have proper adult supervision over them. And so these, these doctrines and these revelations, not doctrines really, but these revelations and these orders were given to them. And they were the only ones that would, would listen to him or even thought that, they could be true. Everybody else was like distancing themselves from Herbal, which was putting them all on hit list. Herbal was like, oh, you won't obey me. You won't come and shoot me out of this prison. You won't, you know, do exactly what I say. Then you're on the hit list. And a wife wanted to divorce him and she's on the hit list. Like everybody was put on the hit list that would not follow him exactly. So these young teenagers who had been brainwashed and brutalized their whole lives, they were the ones that took these revelations and said, okay, well, this is what we have to do. 
And that was uh, those writings and those rantings that he had were called the Book of the New Covenant. And okay. that's what it right. later became called. And it was those KOG siblings that felt like they're the ones that had to carry it out. They felt forced to do it. Like they, okay, they, so, so I have something uh, from Jennifer that I'm going to read. Um, that she sent me before, and I just forgot that I had it until just now. Um, Jennifer about, LeBaron. Yes, Jennifer. about our brother Aaron, who's who's currently in prison. Um, and it's a little bit long, but I'm just going to read it verbatim because I want to say it correctly. Okay. Because I tell people, and um, I don't want to speak for my siblings, especially the ones in the KOG, but I will speak up for them. Okay. So... Aaron was severely abused as a child and forced to be his child soldier. He was very close to his mother, who was murdered by the cult when he was 13. At 15, Aaron was put under the blood covenant of secrecy and forced to be the keeper of the doctrine. At 19, he was forced to be the leader of the cult against his desires for himself. He never wanted to be the leader. By the age of 23, however, while living in Mexico in 1991, he began to secretly question the doctrine of the cult and went to many different churches looking for answers. He also began secretly seeing a therapist. He then stopped teaching the younger siblings from religious books and ordered GED books from the U.S. instead that he encouraged us to study. He strongly urged us to pursue education. He stepped down from any authority and power over his siblings and encouraged us to go live our own lives however we wanted to, and told us to keep all the money we had worked for, for ourselves and earned. Now, and now she's coming. Hold oh, on. Sorry. Okay. Um, he also encouraged said. us to register with the government to start paying taxes, and he showed us how to do it. He did all of this to officially end the cult and the violence and to set everyone free. He set the example for us by moving on with his own life. And for a time, he worked as uh, as an English teacher to business executives. And she's, Anna, do you want to read what Jennifer's saying right there? Right here. Aaron dismantled the KOG in 1992, set us all free. This is one of the stories that is never told. And one reason why it's not told is because it's not my story to tell. But. I'm telling it now with permission. Right. But it's, it's a story that has an enormous impact on the LeBaron family culture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and, that, that's, that, course, that's an important this, story to tell. I, I believe it's an important story to tell. And I feel the weight of um, being the one to say it because okay. While also saying these things, um, I know that bringing this back up and bringing it back into the forefront in the media, once again, is very, very difficult for many, many of my siblings. It's very painful. So while I want to um, talk about these things that happened and um, discuss the, the gruesome things that happened because it's real and it did happen. Um, also, keeping in mind that as we're talking about these things, there are people out there who were victims of these crimes that happened. 
So, right. so what people don't understand is the actual perpetrators were victims themselves because it was forced upon them. It was brainwashed into them. We did not choose our parents and we really did not win prizes for the parents that we were given. Like we got the worst of the worst in, in, <laughs> right. in so many ways. Yeah. And, and still, despite all of that, when Irville's children were, were mentally capable, had developed their brains, you know, to where they had some freedom of thought, they all turned against it and yeah. all of his teachings. Every single one of them did. There's not one single child of Irville Baron who believes he was a prophet. And it's been over 30 years now, since 1992. I'm yeah, shaking it, again. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm. Um, thank you for sharing that, first of all. I'm humbled that you're willing to share that with us. And it's, it's, I think it's enormously important and for understanding your family. So thank you. And uh, I feel like I want to give you a minute here to, are you okay? <laughs> I think she's seeing a comment uh, from Krista right here. And okay. I want to read it out loud for her. She says, that's an important point. The perpetrators were victims as well, which what is something we, we talk a lot when, about I mean, here on Hidden True Crime. Yeah, yeah, I'm saying we, I never was sent to kill anyone, but the children of Ervil were just his puppets. His his the his children followers were just doing his bidding out of pure fear and brainwashing. It was never in their hearts to commit any of these horrible crimes. And they were wrong and the people, the perpetrators that are guilty are in the grave. That was Ervil and Dan Jordan. And I think Rena, so, and again, our listeners might have to go to the documentary to, to know who Rena is, but Rena uh, Chenoweth, who is believed to be the trigger person who killed Rulon Allred. She was the trigger person for okay, Rulon Allred. She was. She wasn't, she wasn't convicted of that. But, no. but one of the elements of that crime that, again, getting back to when I first threw out this idea that all the wives and children became pawns to kill, one of the reasons apparently Ervil sent Rena and Ramona to commit that crime was because, as one of the police officers said, quote, we didn't expect women and children to murder. Yeah. Right? And so Rena was groomed from the age of 12. And she was right. forced parents, into marriage at 16 to Herbal that she oh. did not want, you know, right. against right. her will, you know. And just like we talked about in the documentary, people did these things against their will because it was either kill or be killed in most cases. I mean, you had to obey. If you went against our father, you risked your own blood atonement. And that was very real fear. And, and anybody that whispered even a, a single doubt. Uh, could be blood atoned. Oh, like if you they, if you were trying to pack your bags or you were trying to ease out the door, you run the you would. Dean Best is a good example of that. He was ready to to get out, and he ended up blood atoned. I, I want to point can, this out. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Finish. No, I, you go ahead. I was going to say Anna is as Anna escaped at thirteen. I was just going to point out what you were saying, Celia. Is so is you. She, Go ahead. 
I wouldn't say Anna was afraid of being blood atoned. She I didn't know it was happening. She was not. She was not threatened to be blood atoned. She was just a child who didn't know anything about anything. It was the grown-ups who left who knew about happenings in the cult who had who could go tell and talk and testify against people. Those were the ones that were yes. But thank you for helping me clarify that. Anna, even when I left, I wasn't afraid of any blood atonement um, for myself. I was afraid and I was not a threat because I didn't know anything. I didn't yeah. find out about any of the murders until years later. Oh, I was 17, 18, something like that. But even then you didn't have any firsthand knowledge of anything. You weren't part right. of any planning or I, part of any I read a book that I found right. in Lillian's things called The Prophet of Blood. Yeah. So she Anna, wouldn't have had Anna. anything to testify or oh. anything. There are many actually newbies here asking what exactly the definition of blood atone means. Can you define that okay. again? So um, the, the early teachings of Brigham Young mostly, but also, you know, other prophets of the original LDS church, there was a doctrine called blood atonement. And what that means is um, there are some sins that the blood of Christ can't cover. So you have to atone for that sin with the shedding of your own blood. So basically, it's a backwards way of helping someone, because if they commit the unpardonable sin and they're going to spend all eternity in outer darkness, um, the only way to rescue them from that is to kill them so that they have at least a chance of going to the, what, telestial level? Celia, help me out here. Just, just getting into, you know, not, not suffering outer darkness, yeah. For the rest of their eternal life. So you're, right. it's a backwards way of helping someone. That's how twisted the teachings were, and that's how our brains were twisted and scrambled from the time we were very, very young to where it was like, it's something, it's something beneficial to this person. Thank you for right. And we'll, we'll touch on this later, maybe if we have time, but the, when you say that, it reminds me completely of the Daybell case, but, mm -hmm. but yeah, but we'll get more, to that. Everyone more on that later. Yeah. Let's, let's not oh jump. my gosh. Your, your He's listeners come. are Daybell experts and I'm <laughs> yes, sure they that are. they're making connections, but we can explore that in a bit. Yes, they are. Yeah, we will explore that in a bit. Exactly. I mean, I became a Daybell expert because of you guys. So, <laughs> well, yes. you lived a version of it. The one mighty and strong. It's like it's, it's the a one big mighty and problem strong. in the Mormon teachings. Yes, it is. So, thinking of thinking of blood atonement, then it, would it be fair to say that Rena? I mean, I I know you guys aren't Rena, but do you do you feel like she probably had that fear? I would imagine. 100%. Definitely. Yes. <laughs> Definitely. She was worried that if she wouldn't do it, she might, she might get ex axed herself. So um, there was no choice. If you're sent to do it, you really have to do it. And what have you guys talked to her about? I'm curious what her thoughts or responses oh, yeah. are to the oh. documentary. Oh, Celia, I'll she let you was, take that one. She was... So let me just say, we we watched the first, the second, the third episode, and we're like, oh, good, good, good. They're getting the story right. They're saying it the way we want it. And when they got to the fourth episode where they did talk about the KOG and they didn't really, you know, they didn't have 18 episodes. They had five. So, right. you know, we have to give them some, you know, room for that. But when they left it, you know, uh, with the not 
clarifying that we were reconnected with those, the KOGers and they were safe people and they were good people that had just been traumatized and abused and were also um, victims, severely victims, even though yes, some of them were perpetrators, um, they were victimized too, to put them in the position to be perpetrators. Um, and anyway, I, I think I lost my train of thought. Rena, um, talking oh, to yes. Rena about- after we um, after we watched all the episodes on and I together, she actually flew here and we sat on the couch, literally trembling, watching them like, what did we do? What have we done? Um, but we were a little bit, you know, disappointed with the, the third episode, the way it ended with the KOG. And OK, let's be, honest. On that. let's be mm-hmm. honest. We said a lot of swears. Yeah, <laughs> we did. We like and honesty then, here. And then we spoke to Rena after she watched all the episodes and as it was well. like, like the, the next day. day yeah yes okay and she said you guys you did a really good thing this is the best herbal's children have ever been depicted by the media oh, so okay. this is going to make a difference it wasn't exactly perfect but we knew that going into it we weren't you know we weren't the editors so we had to just say our truth and then hope that it got edited and you then know, in a the other the other piece of this is that we did not have anyone from the KOG who was willing to participate in the documentary for good reason. Right. Like, mm-hmm. That opens up a whole thing for them and their siblings and, and, and their the traumas and trauma and pain that they do yeah. not want to relive. And so even though we invited them, um, of course they said no. And so that was, um, that if we would have had one of those voices, maybe they could have changed the arc of the five. Or maybe episodes. they would have given more time for yeah. that episode. Yeah. But this is what Jennifer said right there at the bottom, Anna. Once Aaron and the cult ended the cult, Rena helped all us kids go to school and supported us going to college. She helped our transition into our new lives. She was one of our heroes and we love her. So Rena really she she um was very kind to us she just poured love on us and said what you did was a good thing here even though we were like oh no it wasn't all perfect um it just made us feel a lot better and um and we had some good talks to rena and and she even said to us you know how sorry she is for any part that she took Mm -hmm. uh any part she played in in the ruling all red um death like she feels for the family and she understands that it caused a lot of generational trauma i mean we know that there are people who see her from a different perspective and a different lens because of the harm that was caused to their family their loved ones their friends Um, but the lens that we see her through is who she became after she was able to think for herself and that person is a person that if you met her today and you didn't know anything about her history and you knew what she had been about for the last 30 years, um, you would See, love This is a her. good human. You would love her. Right. She vo- has volunteered monthly at an organization that helps people who are going through severe difficulties. Um, since 2007, one weekend a month, she has volunteered with this organization to help people that overcome like trauma, overcome all these kinds of things since 2007. 
She has devoted devoted her life to helping people. And she was very instrumental in in getting the, the ones from the KOG who were left behind after all the adults were arrested and put in prison. Like there, there was kids. These are, these are like, like, she's on the top of the, the, the hit list. Like they, there's, yet, there's always talk of this hit them. list. It's not really a list. And she's like, well, I need to go, I need to go help these, these kids. I need to get Herbal's children out of this horrible situation. And, or and he had grandchildren too by then. Yeah. And everybody else is like, well, we don't want anything part Literally. of that. They're scary. And we're not even on the hit list. She is. And she's still like, she, in, she wrote her book. And I had a conversation with her before she wrote her book. She actually gave me credit in her book for helping her with some details, which I don't think I was that helpful. But anyway, I'm in her book and um, for, for, for that. But um, we had a long conversation and she wanted to write her book because so, she wasn't a wealthy woman. And she wanted to get funds to help bring those kids out of Mexico and help them get their lives going in the U.S., uh, to basically rescue them out of these horrible, this horrible situation, impoverished situation that they were left in. And we're all like, well, we don't want to be part of that. We don't want to have anything to do with them. And again, she's like on the top of the hit list. And she's still like, no, I'm going to help them. Anyway, she didn't end up making any money on the book because of a suit. Um, the the Allred family. Um Anyway, they sued her for any money she made on the book, which I understand that. I I can't blame them for that. No, absolutely not. But um, she ended up helping them anyway. (laughs) Like she still got them out of there. She had a property out kind of a rural property. She put trailers on it and and brought some of those kids back. And those kids ended up um, some of them she helped more than others. But a lot of them ended up, you know, being able to get their papers in order, get their names straightened out, get their identities set up as Americans. And um, because they had none of that. And then uh, some of them have have very good degrees now because of all that help that she gave. And and there's some misconceptions about Rena that are on the internet that, you know, she's a wealthy woman and this and that and the other. Um, She is what almost 70 did she say 60? she's 65 65 she's oh 65. sorry sorry if she listens. She's lived the past um, 25 years in a double wide trailer very modest seven year old car right. and, and works every day a manual labor job so the, the internet is leading read us. on the internet is not true <laughs> now Thank goodness and, so this property that she had that she, you know, was from this rural area where she put the trailers on in her own. Celia, um, I don't think we need to go into that. Okay. Honestly. So let me let me just I'll, let me just mention here then my thought about that one thing you're really helping us with here is pointing out some of the untold stories that did not make it into the documentary, obviously because they probably didn't have time, but this idea that I really appreciate that you're putting forth is that people that have committed heinous crimes are capable of tremendous transformations. Yes. Yes. Oh Thank my you. gosh. Yes. That's, yes. That's exactly what we're trying to say. As soon as they're, they get unbrainwashed and their brains get fully developed and they have a moment, have a time away to think for themselves then they realize the truth and they're like, 
they were sincere in following and now they're sincere in following what is actually good and right. When I ran away from the cult, I was 19 years old. I fully still believed everything. I ran away because there was terrible abuses happening that I couldn't bear anymore. Um, and I wasn't faithful enough. You know, I, I couldn't. <laughs> so, so I just couldn't take it anymore. But when I left, it took me probably a couple of years after running away that I finally was able to think enough and process enough to say, oh my gosh, that was all really, really bad. Wasn't it? Like, I don't think I used the word cult even then. I don't know. It's um, but I, it, it's, it's a long, arduous process to get unbrainwashed. So those boys, my brothers who were so unbrainwashed so quickly, I mean, they're just way more intelligent than me, but they were able to see it <laughs> so much more clearly and with so much conviction that they actually, you know, made a huge transformation in their lives. Um, I, I just am in awe. Like, I don't know how they did it because of my own personal experience, how, how much it took for me to actually see the real truth. You know, one of the things that I think about is, you know, the harder you have to push a spring down and hold it there, the farther it's going to go once it, you know, once it's unloaded, you know, and, you know, some of our siblings have far surpassed anything that I could have imagined. Um, one of our brothers has a PhD in electrical engineering that was part of the KOG. Another one no, has a master's a PhD, degree in electrical. No, he has a master's. No, no. PhD. He's oh, a doctor. you're talking about. Sorry, you're talking. You're talking about a different brother. Yes, yes, that's what you're talking about now. When he gets mail, it's doctor. Okay, I've seen right. it. <laughs> so, and we have a sister that graduated from Cornell. Yes, like, yes, and who's now getting a master's at the University of Texas. And um, another sister, uh, I won't say her name, but I'll let her talk if she wants to who um, has a bachelor's degree and also taught at the University of Texas, and she taught conflict resolution. Like, <laughs> I want to just brag on my siblings because 30 years ago, things completely disbanded. Uh -oh. They got unbrainwashed and completely changed their lives and turned them around, and for 30 years, um, they've been making us proud. I'm so proud of my family today. Um, we've decided that Ervil doesn't get the last word on what it means to be a LeBaron. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, that's so important. The, should we the, tell him, should we tell him my little tidbit? Let's you see, tell him your news. You see right here where it says Celia LeBaron. Well, I hid behind my, I've been divorced since 2009, but I have hid behind, Anna, Anna accused me anyway, of hiding behind my ex-husband's last name for all these years because I didn't want to be known as a LeBaron. I didn't want to be associated with my dad and all his atrocities. And I am finally now with the documentary and speaking out, I am, I'm, I finally legally changed my name to LeBaron again to stand in solidarity with my siblings. So here's the thing, what happened, because she's not telling the story right. Oh, okay. We sat and watched that documentary, Fear and Trembling, but you had already made the appointment with an attorney yes. to meet the next morning right. and legally change her name back to LeBaron. Yes. And Anna was with me because she flew here from 
where she lives. She flew here to watch the documentary yeah. with me. So I got then... to stand with her in the courtroom while she changed her name back to LeBaron. And I'm just proud of you, Celia, for, I know. for everything I... that you have overcome. Because the secrecy of the way that you did not want anybody saying a whisper of anything. On social media, I mean, I remember I was so strict about it. Don't you say anything about polygamy or, you know, our dad or anything, or I'm just going to have to unfriend you because I can't have people know in my community that that's where I'm from. And so she did that for many, many years. And now she, uh, and she, she credits me for like putting ask because I asked her if I could use her real name in my book. Because if yeah. you read my book and you watch the documentary, some of the names aren't going to line up because. When my book was published in 2017, I wanted to be very sensitive to my siblings um, and not use their real name if that wasn't something they wanted. And so many yes, of them she, didn't. So I changed right. a lot of names. Um, so she came to me very hesitantly and was like, don't, you can just think about it. You don't have to tell me right away. I just want you to consider if I can, you know, you're a big part of my book. I'd really like to use your real name. If you're okay with it, just let me know. And I was like immediately, like 100%, you can use my real name. Um, I did say, don't use my last name that I had, that I was using at the time, like my ex-husband's last name. I said, don't use my last name, but use my first name. That was just dipping my toe in the water to, to that possibility of people knowing. And she just carried me along and just I dipped my toe and then she started taking me to book clubs and we started talking about you know the history and I got used to talking about it more and more so yes and and Anna was the one that reconnected us all with the not all of us but those of us that were open to it to the KOG she's really uh, been a, a really healing part of of our story of our family story I feel like in a lot of ways, I've been a bridge builder mm -hmm. and a peacemaker. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, as long as we're talking about this, the, the one of the questions raised near the very end of the documentary series, docuseries, was exactly the question you guys are talking about. And that is, what does it mean to be a LeBaron? Right. And that was never real. You guys really didn't answer that question. So, I mean, you're, you're, you're talking about it now, but what, um, do you feel like there's still some stigma associated with that? Or do you feel oh, like definitely. you guys, well, okay. the stigma isn't coming from us and our actions for the last years. Um, okay. The stigma is the media who okay. sensationalize and demonize Irva LeBaron's children. Like I'm, when they broad stroke that and include all of Herbal's children, I'm a bloodthirsty killer, according to the media. And that was one of the things that we wanted to dispel with this documentary that I don't think happened as much as I wanted it to be like a nail in the coffin of that narrative yeah. that we're bloodthirsty killers. We're not. That was not in us from birth. Like I, the first words out of my mouth after the, title sequence comes out we were born good and i believe that with my whole heart and we are now good still it goodness was in us all along all along we're born innocent our brains were just twisted and scrambled with all that fake religion we were oppressed we were 
you know, kept apart from, from reality. We just had our own alternate reality that we lived. But once we were able to have the chance to get out of that, by and far, Herbal's children have done good. What Jennifer did she, what did says, she say? Anna has been an incredible bridge builder in our family, and it's been so amazing to be so close to her again these past 20 plus years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Anna, Anna does get a lot of credit for that, I would say. And I, just even us doing this documentary, it's because of her book. So it's she is really paving the way for, for us to have a different narrative about our family and who LeBarons really are. And they're not just bloodthirsty killers. They were brainwashed children and resilience is a really a really good way to describe Herbal's children. They they have overcome unbelievable odds to so, try to make good lives again for themselves. When everything gets stacked up and then you pile on the brainwashing, you know, once the brainwashing was over and and undone, you know, we were all left with a lot of things that we had to overcome. Like the deck was stacked against us trying to have any kind of normalcy after 1992. The deck was yeah. stacked against us, but the brainwashing was over. And that meant that the violence was over, done. Mm -hmm. And you cannot put a finer point on it. There's been none of that since 1992. And for the media to go on and on and on and on and on about it and like really demonizing those kids, like especially the ones that were part of the KOG, demonizing them. And they can't get under out from under that. And every time something happens and a LeBaron is in the news, whether it has anything to do with the cult or not, all of that gets dragged back up and rehashed in ways that are not productive, that are not reconciliatory, that are not good, that cause more fear in the hearts of people. And if we don't accomplish um, anything else with this interview right here, um, I want the fear to be dispelled that anyone who has ever lived afraid of Ervil's children they do not have to be afraid anymore and have not had a need to be afraid since 1992. But they may not have known that. But they right. know Is this it a good now. time? Is this a good time to talk about the book of the new covenant and how people keep saying, oh, but someone could pick that book back up and start carrying out, you know, more of these blood atonements that Herbal ordered. I wonder if now is the right time to talk about what that book really entails and how likely that is to ever happen. But before we do that, we just need to say it's there's not it's not a book. It's, it's not. It's not a book that's been it's published. A compilation of it's a bunch of weird revelations. Let's Somebody let's stop right out. now. A lot of people haven't seen the documentary and a lot of people don't know your story. So let's actually maybe explain what the book of the covenant is okay. before we continue because what you'll say won't even make sense yes so do you want uh, to or should i you go ahead celia okay so when our father um you know went off the deep end after he was finally convicted and he i guess felt like 
you know, God abandoned him. I don't know. He lost um, control of everything. He lost, yes, he lost mental control completely. He had a so he lost break. control of the people that were right. outside of the prison. Well, yes. So he began this prolific writing of revelation upon revelation upon revelation to the firstborners, to Ronald Reagan, to each one of his children, to his wives, to each follower. Like he went on this just a streak of writing and it was not coherent. It didn't make a lot of sense. There were, there were things in his, in each revelation, um, somebody took it and compiled it into a book of sorts. And, um, and it got the name of the, the book of the new covenant. Some people are thinking, oh, this is like some kind you know, they're, they're imagining that it's some kind of coherent scripture or something. It isn't. When you read the book of the new covenant, it is literally the rantings of a desperate madman who knows he's lost control and is trying desperately to gain control back by making promises to the warden and promises to the inmates and, and to the president of the United States. Yeah. Like so Celia, but also we'd say rantings of a madman because that is just a way to say things, but it's really somebody who's just very mentally ill. And he was very, very, he was in desperation trying to get a hold of things again. Now he was and, never diagnosed with anything, so we can't diagnose him. But, you know, when you read them, people who are trained in these things understand what they're looking at more than somebody like you and me reading this going, oh my gosh, this is just so weird. And, you know, Hiram trying to read it on the documentary was like, I just can't read this anymore. Just me even trying to read it today to, to get some excerpts from it that we could use for this podcast was horrifying. Like I, it's yeah. not, it's something you don't, nobody's going to ever pick that up and say, yes, this looks like doctrine. Something we should follow and adhere to. And like, it doesn't even make sense for the most part. Right. Yeah. So, And then, but then you have his earlier writings where even though it was horrible doctrine that he's. Can we just call it bullshit doctrine, please? Thank you. Let's do that. Okay. So he was coherent. He's writing these pamphlets in the early 1970s, you know. 60s, 70s, writing pamphlets about the way he believes and stuff. He, he called, he said the Ten Commandments was the civil law of God on earth. So, so anyway, and the first so, commandment is about, you know, serving God. So it's like, it's so, not civil at all, but that's what he called it. So when you compare his earlier writings from 1972 or so, or so with the writings from when he was imprisoned and convicted, um, mm-hmm. the difference is incredibly obvious that he was not in his right mind when he wrote those things. Yeah. So uh, on that note, you guys sent some of his writings. So just to be clear, none of these are published. Is that accurate? No, No, it's not on the internet. There's no place people can go and find it. Um, The original ones are the, the, the ones really. So the, so the, the 1972, what? you sent a... The original ones from 1972, not the ones from prison. Okay. 
That's so what I'm talking about. Thank you. Okay, let's be very clear because that's what I said. The original ones. Okay. I thought you meant All like the, the original of this. No, the original <laughs> oh, ones from okay. 1972. We're we're in agreement. We're in agreement. Let's, let's be thing. super clear. Yes, the other ones are not. It's just copies. See, right in this moment, it's clear that you guys are siblings. And I, <laughs> I appreciate that. So I appreciate the reality of, of you being, you know, you're not perfect siblings and I love it. So thank ah. you. Um, Hardly. <laughs> but we love Talking each about other. Myself. <laughs> we do love each other. You're the yeah, first ones to admit we are imperfect. <laughs> With my whole heart, Celia. Yes. <laughs> Um, so go ahead, John. So before, before I read this and you know, you mentioned diagnoses just briefly, I'm, I'm not going to approach that, but I, I, am sure some of our viewers are curious what my thoughts are on mm -hmm. Irville's mental health. As, and, a, uh, as are we. I, I am okay. curious what well, your thoughts are about that. I'm not going to, I can't diagnose. I've never met him, you know. Obviously, it, it it wouldn't be ethical. Never but I, will. I, when I was watching the documentary, I just I wrote down a few, I scribbled a few notes in the margin, and I put some of these words. And you know, I guess our our viewers can make of these words what they want. But I, I you know, I I did see a lot of paranoia, mm -hmm. and I, of course, that's not a diagnosis. But there there was a great deal of paranoia. I think there was kind of a manic quality you know, a manic quality might be associated with something like bipolar, but I, you know, I don't know. It, it clearly like his excessive writing and he had this, he seemed to have this abundance of energy and right. And so I just wrote down that, you know, it seemed like there was kind of a manic quality that might be associated with bipolar. Uh, you know, at times his grasp on reality seemed a little tenuous. So I had, I wrote down psychosis with a question mark, like, there might have been some times where he tended to exhibit some psychotic features, but I don't know for sure. He did seem, at least in his writings, he did seem to have a certain element of obsessive compulsive qualities that he was, you know, that he was, and again, maybe that was more of a manic issue, but he definitely seemed to be somewhat obsessive compulsive about some of his work and his writings and he would stay up all night. But again, that might overlap with some of the mania. And then, you know, obviously probably the biggest one is that he, and I don't know that I'm sure this is the most obvious, but there was so much grandiosity and so much narcissism in terms of right. Being a prophet, being the president of the United States that, you know, so I think the grandiosity in particular was just, off the charts. But that's I mean, not, again, that's not a diagnosis. Those are just some thoughts. So I don't, do you guys see some of those qualities? Right. Will you tell us, cause I don't know if that's been made clear. Like you're, you're an actual, you have, you're a decreed psychologist, right? Can you tell right, us licensed, more about that? Yeah. Licensed, yeah. Licensed forensic psychologist. Okay. So and can you explain what you do for a living? So that people understand more of why, especially why we wanted to have this conversation with you specifically. So I've done a lot of clinical work uh, over the course of my career, but in the last decade or so, I've done more forensic work, which means 
going into jails and prisons and assessing felons and inmates for sentencing, for risk, for the community, for mental health issues, right? The, my, my job, generally speaking, is to evaluate prisoners, inmates, felons for different, for various um, placements in the community or sentencing or, you know, just a, a number of different things. Mm-hmm. So it's your you. expertise. So this is your expertise. You are an expert. Yeah, so, right. He I, is so, a criminal psychologist. He assesses criminals. For thank living. you. Right. So Ervil, somebody like Ervil would be, you know, definitely uh, trying to understand somebody like Ervil would be hopefully in my wheelhouse. You know, yes. he's, he's, he's pretty extreme, but you yeah. know, I'm, I'm presently involved on a couple of murder cases and every murder case is extreme. So, um, so there are, there's going to be similarities among many, many criminals. Yeah. So thank you for that. Um, because this is the fact that those that's your expertise is the reason why we wanted to have this conversation specifically with you and Lauren. Thank you. Well, we appreciate it. I mean, I've watched your work and I've watched what you've done for years now. And, um, and I've always appreciated how you didn't just come off and talk about even Chad Daybell, you know, you read the books and you inferred things and, you know, how you treated that with such compassion, even though we're, we want justice for Tylee and JJ and Tammy Daybell and the others that, you know, so even those two things, the fact that you were able to um, have those conversations with us, the viewers, um, and give us perspectives that we wouldn't have normally thought about, about the motives and the, the way that he got to the place where he uh, did the things that he did. And that has been something that I have appreciated about you all these years and why I trusted you guys to have this conversation with. Well, thank you. Thank you. Anna reached out. Yeah. And Uh, then I reached out. This is still Anna's number. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I'm I'm flattered and um, I'm very grateful that you guys decided to join us tonight. So I'm not sure that anybody else could have um, helped us talk about all these things in this reparative way um, that hopefully will bring good for our family and for the victims and for everyone that has been affected by the life of Erva LeBaron and Dan Jordan. And, and, and the that's the that only reason we do this. This Thank is you. this is the only reason we wanna come on here and do this and take all this time and use all this emotional energy is yeah. to try to set the record straight and to try to help our family and for to help people understand um, what what happened to cause Herbal's children to do the things that they did. And it was never because they wanted to. Yeah. And you, you mentioned um, you mentioned having compassion for Chad Daybell, which which is true. I actually, you know, it's interesting because Lauren and I were talking earlier and I said, you know, if 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 we really want to understand Erbil and his story, we really probably have to go back to some of his upbringing and his four brothers and his 
his father. I mean, we can go into that a little bit. I think that having a, a brief overview of some of those things would be helpful in this case. Um, in the early 1900s, the Mormon church decided that uh, they, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints disavowed polygamy in 1890. And some of those who were continuing to practice left the United States and went to Mexico. And our grandfather was one of them. And so Ervil was conceived on the trip to Mexico and was the first of those children born there. And so um, in the in the early early times of that time, he was a polygamist. And then when the LDS church disavowed it again in 19, whatever it was, like because for they sure. Didn't, they didn't really disavow it. They just publicly disavowed it. But they actually sometimes sent people to go continue the practice in right. Mexico and in Canada. And, and that was our family. So um, when the when the church decided that it was for sure over now, um, there were people who in the colonies down in Mexico who said, okay, we're not going to do this anymore. But our grandfather was one who said he was going to continue. And there was a lot of ostracization. How do you they say that ostracized. They were ostracized and bullied because they were still practicing polygamy. And so his earliest days one isolated down in a colony compound down in Mexico, um, bullied because his father's not going to renounce the doctrine of polygamy. And then, you know, growing up in that. And then eventually, Ervil and Joel went and served a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And because he was teaching polygamy, which was the original teachings, um, they were uh, removed from their mission abruptly and uh, again, excommunicated from the LDS church, that which they were trying to, you know, and this is like I, in the 1950s. So I don't know. I don't know what year it was. I'm just. And, and there's one thing I want to clarify, too, that the early teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints actually forbid the changing of that doctrine. So right. they knew it couldn't change, that it had to be the true church. They had to continue teaching polygamy. It's very so, baked into the religion. And so all of that was his upbringing. And okay. uh, all of this um, extreme, extreme, um, like, bullying. Well, they had a lot of poverty, too. There was poverty. Oh, poverty, involved. for sure. He, he suffered, too. It wasn't then, his mental health, I'm sure. And then eventually the grandfather goes and starts his own colony, the LeBaron colony, where I was born. And... You know, and so there's now even more isolation, even more of that doctrine and teaching. And, you know, we have to be the ones and we're the persecuted ones. And, you know, that persecution complex, you know, all of that was a part of his upbringing. So. Right. I think that's a view, a better idea of where some of these things originated from. Right. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I think that's an important part of the story. And when you say grandfather, you're talking about Alma, I assume, right? Mm -hmm. That was his, that was, Alma that was Ervil's father. Okay. Yeah. Yes. What, do you know anything about his relationship with Ervil? Uh, was, was Alma? his dad? Yeah. Alma, was he? I, I don't really know much. I know that he okay. was very close with his brother, Joel. 
Like, yeah. who, I yeah. think they were best friends growing up. They were very close like, in age. Joel, Joel yeah. wanted to go serve a mission, but he wouldn't go without Ervil. And Ervil was a minor, so he was one of the youngest ever of the LDS church to go and serve a mission because they approved him to go with Joel. Well, that so th- that gives us a broad overview of Ervil's upbringing, and I think that's very helpful. So thanks for sharing that. The so should we get into some of the? <laughs> as far as I know, is, is this going to be the first time that somebody has read this much of his writing publicly? I think so. Well, I mean, they showed they showed um, little snippets of it I in the documentary. Yeah. In the documentary, very little, little sentences only. This is we want this to be a little bit more extensive, so that we want to ease people's minds, so that they understand that this is nothing to be afraid of. I mean. So yeah, so I'm gonna read. I'm gonna read from for the, so the first one apparently was published. It's called The Law of Liberty. It was published in 1972. So this would have right. been roughly eight or nine years before the prison writings. Yes. Right. This so, was before Joel was killed, even. Okay. So, um, so this is this is the beginning of like the third paragraph of the stuff you sent me. Um, and so, quote: No man has a natural right to citizenship in a free nation, and hence a right to enjoy the fruits of liberty. Who is not willing to obtain a basic knowledge of the laws and principles of liberty, of the functions of legitimate government, and of the basic civil duties that are essential to make true liberty a reality? Unquote. So the reason I chose this sentence is because it's coherent, right? It's a, it's a complex sentence. I mean, you, you it's taken out of context, so you kind of have to read some of the right. other stuff. I mean, it's not it's certainly not if you're making an argument about liberty and freedom and all that stuff, it's 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 not exactly the the most philosophically, you know, sound argument, but 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 that's not why I'm reading. I'm reading it to show that that his sentence structure is complex, right? This is he's, it's coherent. It makes sense. He doesn't define liberty well, but you know that's that's it just. It was a bullshit religion he was teaching. So yeah, yeah. But, he, but he did make some. He could put together coherent information, right? So that's 1972, right? I mean, that's not so. So for the, for for those of our our viewers out there who know a little bit about philosophy, that is not John Stuart Mill, the the British philosopher who wrote about liberty. That, but but it is a well written sentence. It's complex. It shows a certain level of of um, complexity and intelligence and coherence. And that's 1972. This is 1981. This is when Ervil is in prison doing what you you guys described as rantings. Um, you know, the interesting thing about what I'm going to read here is, I mean, people, the listeners, our viewers can make their own assessment, but they'll, they'll notice immediately the tone is so different. Um, but, you know, the interesting thing about the, this, this passage I'm going to read is there's a certain poetic quality here that's lacking in some of his earlier writing. And, and I don't think that's intentional. I think it's just because he's just kind of spewing everything on the page. Right. But, but I mean, there are moments in this writing, it's, it's a little out there, but there are moments that are you interesting. You say a little, 
<laughs> well, let's see which part he chose to read. All right. So here we go. Uh, I'm going to read two paragraphs so, here. So again, for those just joining, these are this is Ervil LeBaron's writings. Maybe some of the most that's ever been read online. We won't be publishing these because yeah. who wants to publish Ervil LeBaron's no. writings anymore? We and, don't, but we are we going to assess about them it. here tonight. We talked when I talked to you about this. Um, I asked you to please destroy what I sent to you. Once yes, we're yeah. finished with this. Yeah, and you these will not be. Yes, these will not Thank be published you. anywhere. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Exactly. I think the so on that issue, I don't. I don't think that these paragraphs are anything that someone could take up and create a new religion with. I think Thank they're you. more. They're more about an insight into. Ervo LeBaron than anything else. So that's that was my purpose. Um, so bear with me for a moment. This, <laughs> this is two paragraphs, and I think we I need to read both to get this. But um, so, quote, for this is the end of times of the Gentiles, the end of the power and of the glory of the apostates in my fallen and corrupted kingdom. For this is the end of the world when all things will melt before me with awesome and fervent heat even the heat of my marvelous spirit, which is being poured out onto the earth and through my most humble and obedient and awesome and wonderful servant, my great and most wonderful patriarch and obedient prophet and seer and revelator. That's the first paragraph. Second paragraph continues. For now I am going to reveal all the great and wonderful mysteries of my great and glorious kingdom to all mankind through my servant, Ervil M. LeBaron, even my most humble and dedicated and graceful and holy purified and sanctified and glorified and holy dignified and most graciously and fully and wonderfully blessed, even to the fullest extent of his great and extensive capacity at this beautiful and most excellent time schedule. Did you guys get that? I mean, um, he was a... He was pretty desperate at that time, and he was trying to keep a hold of his own insecurities, I think. He, he, I mean, I know it, it's ridiculous, but it's still, you know, it's sad. He was so severely mentally ill. I mean, that's my yeah, take yeah, on it. I, I know I, I'm not a therapist or a psychologist, but. Well, I, I, I think the reason I chose this passage is because, I mean, he's, 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 Obviously, the grandiosity of saying that his servant Ervil LeBaron is going to, you know, give us the word of God, right? He's he's speaking as if he's God, essentially. He did, yes. And you know that I mean, most cult even for for even the most seasoned cult leader, they may claim their deities, they may claim their prophets, but they don't talk quite like this. Right, that it's this a lot is, of redundancy, a lot of repetition. Repetition, um, you and know, not really good sentence structure or anything. Right, the the sentence structure it's it's pretty much a run on sentence of sorts. Unlike the other passage I read, it lacks coherence. It's become so self absorbed and grandiose that it almost makes no sense. Right, so the the tone is completely different. Um, yeah, clearly this is a very different presentation than the other passage, but um, 
but I, I, you know, so it's easy to see you guys talked about how that his children were seeing that in prison, he was the term we would use is decompensating. In other words, like his ego was starting to fall apart that he was, he wasn't able to maintain sort of an integrated self an integrated sense of himself. And, um, and you said that you guys kind of recognize that. And so you, I think this gives a little bit of a flavor. We didn't, we were too little, Um, but the adults in the organization were like, no, this doesn't make sense. And he was just throwing out blood atonements upon everybody. And he was going on and on and trying to take control of you know, I mean, he was he was writing just revelation after revelation after re- revelation to just everybody. I think when I was looking through it, there were like three to me, and I'm just a child. Um, yeah. He just was became very prolific, and again, just not coherent. It wasn't doctrinal at all, so it wasn't like something anybody would pick up and say, "This is doctrine. This is scripture. We're going to base a, a new church around this." That's really the main point for us wanting to send that to you as a, you know, a psychologist, as somebody who, you know, would, has, has dealt with criminal minds. This wasn't something anybody could go run with and make a religion out of. Right. And, and, and they won't, I don't think (laughs) it would be a stretch to take this passage and do that by the way, because the interesting thing to me is that his point of view here is the point of view of God. Mm -hmm. He's talking about Ervil in the third person and he's writing as if he he's literally writing of his, he's, as if he's God. Yeah, this yeah. is he was calling them revelations. He was speaking. He was the mouthpiece for God. So yes, he is speaking as though God is the instrument of this information. Right. Whereas in 1972, you don't see any of that. It's right. it's clear. It's clear that that's this is. Ervil is the narrator, but he's third person and he's developing this from his perspective. He's not acting as if God is telling him what to say. So, so those are, those are a couple of the differences and and thank you for sharing that those passages. It was very interesting to read those. And as I said, we're quite honored that you guys trusted us enough to, to do that. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is really, really important this is an important conversation. And I knew that that both of you understanding these kinds of things the way you do could help us have this nuanced conversation and help bring understanding and insight to people and not just the general public who we do want to them to understand, you know, the things that happened, um, but mostly the people who may still be afraid. Um, that there's just no reason to be afraid anymore. That's the, if we, I, that's the main thing that we want everyone to know. And I mean, I have had many people reach out to me when my book first came out, people reached out to me that were afraid and said, do we still need to be afraid? And I'm like, no, you don't. And then when the documentary came out, I've had people contact me saying, I'm this person related to this person. And this is the first we're hearing that we don't have to be afraid of Erwell's children anymore. 
and the way the documentary ended, you know, the the girl, the lady that um, the director and uh, executive producer Sarah Mast, um, she told us that, you know, there's things about it that we are going to interview other people and they're going to have a different perspective than you. And we had understood that. But she goes, you have my word that I will give you the last word on this. And she did. And she did. Um, the final words on the screen, you know, that all of Ervil's children have disavowed his doctrines and teachings. Yeah, yeah, that's so important. The the other element here is that Lauren and I talked about this a little bit earlier, but Lauren was saying, you know, what do you think are some of the main components that that could have led to this? And uh, I don't know if you want me to share those, but I, yes. I, they might. Okay, they might be important to share because I think what you've done through throughout this program or this show tonight is you've kind of shown how all, none of those conditions apply anymore mm-hmm. to your family. So. Uh, I think the the conditions that kind of led to this, the, the the family culture and the conditions that led to the cult, I think I would list those as be, it would start with a very rigid family system, a very rigid culture, meaning that every family has boundaries around what they allow in and outside of the family, right? And with your family, it was so rigid and so controlled that no information was able to get into or leave the family culture. Mm-hmm. That wasn't information that was given by Dan Jordan or Ervil or right. It was so controlled. You guys didn't have access to newspapers, media, television, nothing. Mm-hmm. That meant essentially that the message that was portrayed, and this is the second condition that there was a very toxic message and a very one-dimensional message, and it was repeated over and over. So you have this toxic and repetitive messaging without without any information able to come in and out of your family culture. Mm-hmm. And that creates a situation where that's, you guys use the term brainwashing, but that, right, that's where indoctrination comes into play. That you have Within that rigid system, if there's only one message about the one mighty and strong or about the kingdom of God to come, whatever it is, that it's going to become it's going to become a part of your family at a fundamental level, and it it, it results in indoctrination. And in that environment, what what psychologists sometimes call enmeshment, meaning that the family is so. because the culture is so rigid and closed that all the members essentially believe the same things. They don't deviate. If they, you guys said this in the documentary that there were no challenges. There were no questions, right? You guys just, if you didn't believe this, you were threatened. Mm -hmm. And so within this rigid family system with repetitive and toxic messaging, you get this extreme enmeshment where you all believe the same thing. You're all on the same page you all have the same identity, and if you deviate at all, you're ostracized or maybe even killed. Uh-huh. Yep. And then the you final communicated. <laughs> okay, communicated, right? Like like Joel. Um, uh-huh. And then the final component would be this extreme fear that if if you live in an environment of you know the term you guys used in the documentary was constant fear. 
it really drives the, that repetitive and toxic messaging. It drives it home because you're always on alert. You're always mm-hmm. on edge. And it, it, you, you, you begin to, it really makes that message stick at a very primitive level. And so that creates a lot of compliance. It creates a lack of reflecting on your situation. It, 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 you know, it, it, to, to put it bluntly, it creates a situation where you can have child soldiers mm-hmm. right. because there's absolutely no attempt to rebel or question or challenge authority in that type of environment. So I think you have all those components. And then, you know, I think also you can throw in this idea that, you know, you guys talked a lot about in the documentary about how you kept thinking that you guys were to quote you guys, you were building the the kingdom of God, right? You were the children of God. You were trying to create, in spite of all your suffering and pain and everything, all the trauma you were going through, you still had this hope of this utopia and this kingdom of God that you were all working towards. And that kept you even more compliant. So I, I think I see those five conditions as really coming together and creating this environment that was, you know, well, let's say deadly, right? It was mm-hmm. so traumatic and horrible and um, eventually led to all of the, the the horrible things that happened. So, and, and the, I think the reason this is important to talk about is because it, I could go through every one of these and, and show based on what we've discussed tonight that none of these apply anymore to your family. Correct. That's right. Everybody has free thought. We run the spectrum on beliefs all the way from solid atheist to Christian to some that maybe even still believe in polygamy. Um, very few, but those that do allow their children to make their own decisions. There's no, there's no more force. We have different political views, religious views, and everybody's free to think what they want to think. Right. So the, just to go through these conditions and, and talk about how they've changed. Your family system is not closed anymore. It's open. Mm-hmm. There's no toxic repetitive messaging about how people have to be or what they have to do. That's mm-hmm. changed. So there's an open discussion of ideas. There's no longer extreme enmeshment, meaning that everyone has to be the same person. Essentially you you let people have their own identities, live their own lives, do their own things. There's no longer this extreme fear. Mm-hmm. that you've you've created a family culture now of security mm-hmm. and so you've you've really gotten rid of that fear as you just said Anna and as far as like this idea of utopia i mean essentially if you get rid of those other four conditions your utopia is going to be based on whatever you know people want it to be it's mm-hmm. not going to be one it's not going to be one thing right we've been able to create the lives that we can be proud of Yes. And so I think, I think it's important to talk about those conditions that led to all these crimes and to all this pain and trauma, because those conditions do not apply to your family anymore. Correct. Uh, uh, I think our work here is done. Yes. You uh, nailed it right there. Yes. Shane is saying, reclaim the name. Hashtag LeBaron Strong. Uh, yes. Thank you. That, that is docu- our message tonight. Yeah. Where are the documentary people when we need them? 
I know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Ozzy Tad is saying they have such a healthy sounding family now considering the beginning. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I love to talk about and say is that we're just like every other family in America. When we get together, we do not talk about politics or religion. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you still have Thanksgiving with each other. Yes. Then. I mean, not, I mean, there's no way to get us all together. Like uh, that's a family. You have our sibling reunion though. We yeah. have our moms, some of our mom's core but, uh, children. And then the other part that I think is just um, morbidly funny or grave humor. I don't know how to talk about it, but. I remember the first time we went to a funeral where someone died of natural causes. And it was and like, we're all looking at each other like, Oh my gosh, what is happening here? Wow. How do we have you get a to go to a normal funeral? funeral? This is a normal thing that people yeah. do. And we've been yeah. to weddings now, monogamous weddings. Hello. You know, <laughs> and we get together at these events and it's like no politics and religion. You know, one of our sisters graduated um, from nursing school. And it took her a many, many years, but she overcame, literally had to learn to read to go to nursing school, like literally. So overcame every obstacle and finally graduated. And we all showed up to celebrate her accomplishment, which I'm still so proud of her. Uh, and at that thing, we're saying, no politics and religion, everyone, you know, <laughs> but, but we got together. And we do get to have these events that normal people get to have. And it's just it's, so it's been a, a long road. It's taken us year. a long time. Yeah. I, I I can't get over that. You you guys are the LeBairds have come so far. You're celebrating funerals where it's natural causes <laughs> and marriages where it's monogamous. That was yeah. a great summary. That was a that's, great, uh, yeah. The the things that's, we take for granted, I guess, is what yeah, I yes. gathered from that. Yeah, we get the normal yeah. stuff now, right? Yeah, and and we get to celebrate it, and I think we appreciate it more than most people, um, because again, we were separated so much as children, and yeah, I'm emotional yeah. again. Oh safe space it's okay uh-huh we're grateful for you we're grateful for you um you know we had uh, uh, john you, you, let's all we had plans to to delve into the comparisons with daybell we had plans to have you guys ask us questions but you know we've already we've been live now for over two hours and perhaps mm -hmm. maybe we just need episode two Yes, I am all for episode two where we talk about the whole Daybell thing. There we go. There Let's we go. Put it on the calendar, yeah. but only if your people want us to do that. Well, let's ask them right now. Do you guys I want mean, Anna back to talk know. Daybell? I know C Celia too, but Celia, you don't know as much about the Daybell case. That's I'm not... not an expert like Anna is on the Daybell. Yeah. I'm not even an expert. I've just watched all the stuff you guys have put out. And well, then the you're an expert because I'm going to say. I literally listened to the, the entire trial of Lori Vallow Daybell. Well, you're so, an expert then. Yeah, I, I listen think... to the podcast, but that's it. Okay. Yeah, um, I don't think Daybell's going to fit at this point. But no, yeah, no. we we had a different purpose, and it was, I think, uh, one thing you know is to, is to 
the importance of, as they said, hashtag reclaim the, reclaim the name and to let people know that this was 30 years ago. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. You're on that, that... the right track now. Yes. And I love that we... story of you taking back your LeBaron name to Celia. Yeah, I think we'll, we'll definitely, Anna, if you're interested, we'll, we'll invite you both back. But if you want to talk about Dable, we'd love, we'll, we'll, we'll look forward to having you back to discuss it. Well, but, I know that Celia will be able to talk about the doctrine of Irv okay. LeBaron, the way it relates and all that better than I would. So she is more of an expert on that. I was a little more brainwashed. Yeah. Anna. So, so she would be um, welcome to be part of that discussion because I know that uh, she'll get it better, writer, writer, right. <laughs> more correct. I don't know. I can't even words now. I'm so <laughs> discombobulated. Yeah. Over here. Two hours. Yeah. Um. <sighs> oh, it seems like everybody's, uh, yes, a unanimous yes, as far as I can tell here. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. sweet. You're definitely invited back. So I, I, if it's okay with you guys, I want to wrap this up, but I'm going to go back. So again, like at the end of the documentary, that question was asked and I kind of threw it out there for you guys earlier, but I want to give you guys a chance to answer it now. And that the question was again, what does it mean to be a LeBaron? Would you guys mind taking a shot at that? Each of you? Well, at the end of the documentary, it's, I don't know who came up with these facts that, uh, you know, there's over seven thousand LeBarons in yeah. the in the um, in the Americas. So um, yeah, I saw that. That's a lot of that's a lot of LeBarons and yeah, a lot of hardworking people. A lot of people. I mean, I think LeBarons that that are my family, um, hardworking, um, good work ethic, has been instilled in us. Um, smart, intelligent, good, kind, um, wanting to do good in the world and make the world a better place. Overcomers. Overcomers, That's resilient, grit, determination, like so much. And um, yeah. educated, not, I mean, every everybody has their own story and, and some people had more resources than others as far as what they were able to accomplish with their life. But that goes for everybody in, in the world. You know, there's varying levels of support and resource. So, but on the, for the most part, you know, you run into LeBarons and you see things online. I, I remember the year that there was a group of LeBarons that not probably distant related to us that were singing beautifully. Oh, really beautiful singers, yeah. Beautifully singing and it just went viral and I kept over and over people saying is this your are you these relatives are these relatives and I just want to say that there's a there's a beauty to being a LeBaron that um we have been having we've had to overcome a lot of odds but the beauty that we're creating in the world today is absolutely goodness defined and I will go with her definition. Okay. So I'm just going to reiterate that. I, I love that line, Anna, about there's a beauty to being a LeBaron. Let's finish with that. That's I can't say it any better than that. So thank you for 
Thank you guys for joining us. Thank you for being so open and honest and transparent about everything and sharing so much and letting us have those writings. I could go on and on, but we really, really, really are grateful. I am. I'm sure Lauren is too, but we're so grateful. And hopefully we can get you guys back. Thank you. I'll be happy to come back. This will be my third time. Which, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Third time, right. Third time. (laughs) I'm here for it. Uh, Anna's book is incredible. I recommend it to anyone. If you want to know the full story, the basics of the story, there it is a polygamous daughter. Uh, the Hulu document documentary is on Hulu. And, and for those saying, Oh, I wish I could watch. I don't have a Hulu account. I'll give you a tip. A uh, month free membership. Yeah. So, so and it's on Disney up. plus now too. Oh, okay. and it's on Disney plus. Okay. Hulu and Disney are partners. And that, that okay. the name of that documentary is daughters of the Cult. daughters of the Cult. Yes. Daughters of the cult. And uh, we're so grateful to have you both here. Thank you to those for your support tonight, your kind comments. Uh, thank you for those that join our Patreon, patreon.com slash hidden to crime. Thank you for your likes. Uh, let Please like this. You know, we always say that to, to help like our videos for John and me. It is true. It is no secret that it helps the algorithm gods out there when you give this video a thumbs up. But I think in this situation, in this case, I also want to point out that the message that Anna and Celia wanted to share tonight is important to them and to claiming, reclaiming their name and to sharing their story. And so if you like it, you, you help them share this important, important story to them um, about their family and about their name and about what they've overcome. So thank you for liking or giving this video a thumbs up and thank you for your comments. I have about 30 pinned questions um, or sorry, 30 starred questions that I was going to pull up, but clearly uh, we've gone over time tonight. So we'll, we'll share that. We'll leave that for next time too. So we'll go into Daybell and then we'll do a few questions. If Perfect. anybody else has any more questions, leave them in the comments of this video and we will see them all. So right, thank you everybody. All right. Good night. Thank you, thank you guys. Good night everyone. Thank you. Hello, Hidden Gems. It's Lauren with Hidden, a true crime podcast. For exclusive content, things Dr. John and I only dare say behind a paywall, become a Patreon member at patreon.com slash hidden true crime. You'll find bonus episodes, early releases, and insider info. Thank you for your endless support.